0: So Hello and welcome to the 15th episode of the Ocean Governance Podcast, brought to you by the Ocean Governance Group at the School of Business, Economics and Law at the University of Gothenburg. Today, we don't have any guests. It's only me, Aaron and David, And uh, but I think that we have quite an interesting episode ahead of us anyway, because we have two very interesting articles that will be fun to discuss, I think, and... Well um maybe I, I i don't think i'll say too much more but david i'll let you continue with the first paper yes thanks Aaron yeah
1: i think both both of our texts today somehow relate to how we perceive the sea and and how and for what purposes that we want to use or preserve this the seas in the oceans and um my text um is actually called why does the seal exist uh uh, Theology in the Present-day Human Relations to Animals. It is written by Jan Marcin Wieslawski at the Institute of Oceanology, Polish Academy of Sciences. And it was published in number six last year, 2020, of the journal Sofilologica, Polish, Polish Journal of Animal Studies. that may perhaps seem like an unlikely or at least unusual uh, pick of journal for this pod. But um, we both found this article to be very relevant to the kind of issues that we like to discuss here. And the article starts by the author explaining that the question posed in the title, that is, Why do seals exist? was actually directed to him at a meeting of, of fishermen union activists and marine scientists in Poland a couple of years ago. And the representative of fishermen wanted to hear the quote-unquote hard scientific arguments for keeping seals in the Baltic Sea. And according to this fisherman, then, the role of the seal in nature is the reduction of sick and weak fish, while actual seals are consuming healthy fish, which is not right. And this, the author then contends, is a clear example of deep uh, teleology in thinking about nature. And he briefly discusses the history of teleological views of nature. So that is essentially the idea that every creature in nature has its particular purpose and a given role to perform in nature. And he traces these kinds of arguments from Aristotle through Christian uh, scholars like uh, uh, Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, who assumed that God had created all the living beings for the benefit and use of man which was then the overall purpose of their their existence. And then he comes to Darwin, who was the first to demonstrate that the origin and development of species is not purpose-oriented, but is an effect of natural selection. But he also notes that it is still not uncommon to see evolution represented as a a tree depicting a process of unidirectional growth from simple to more and more complicated forms, and with man as at, at the uh, outermost and highest branch of this life of growth, so once more sort of um, representing this notion of everything leading to man and serving this purpose of leading up to man and being useful for for humans uh, Theleology in a new form appeared. Uh, he contends with the Gaia hypothesis formulated by James Lovelock in the late, late 1960s and developed further in by him and others in the 1970s. And in this Gaia theory or hypothesis, all species are seen to perform specific roles and all are needed for the preservation of life on Earth. Uh, and Earth is then seen as a homeostatic system that, con- that can control and sustain physical conditions necessary to keep life going. And although that may not be the classical uh, theological approach, it still sees species as having a purpose in relation to something other than themselves. Theological views are the author argues alive um, also among administrators and managers managers dealing with nature protection. The regulations introduced to protect species and habitats and ecosystems are often based on or justified by the protection of a given element that is seen as crucial and he then comes to the notions of ecosystem goods and services which can in themselves be seen as based on a kind of teleological explanations so for example if the author argues the value of bumblebees is calculated on the basis of the volume of fruits that they pollinate It means that the reason to value and protect the bumblebees is for this specific role that it um, performs. Then he takes um, an example, namely the the, the, um, golden warbler in Costa Rica, which was highly valued for its role as a predator of caterpillars in coffee plantations. But when the price of coffee went down on global markets, so did the value of the golden warbler. And this, he argues, shows that if we assign a species a specific role and the species is unable to perform that role, or if that role is no longer as beneficial as it used to be, um, the species is out of place in this organized garden-like system that we have then created in our minds. And a core problem uh, with this view is also that species are not narrowly and permanently role-oriented. A great majority of species are in fact very flexible, which is the main reason behind their survival in changing environments. So the wolf can eat caterpillars or deer or sheep or beavers, depending on the circumstances. The author then goes on to argue that humanity is now facing a vital decision concerning the mode of the natural system exploitation and our relations to nature and animals. One possibility, he says, is to apply an ecosystem based approach, which, of course, is something that we've been talking about in this pod previously on several occasions. And this, he, he argues, tells us that while observing, for example, a given water body, such as the eastern part of the Baltic Sea. We shall take into consideration the natural processes of primary and secondary production, natural mortality, parasitism, etc., and calculate how much fish that we can remove from the basin without disturbing the whole system. In other words, we observe the dinner table of nature, as he calls it, and calculate how much fish can we remove without destroying the meal for all the other uh, species then. The alternative view is to consider how much of a given resource we may remove without destroying the resource itself. In this view, if we once more use uh, fish stocks in the Baltic Sea as an example, all predators like seals and uh, food competitors like minor fish species, not to mention parasites, they're all pests and threats threatening the maximum yield of our target species. And while the first approach secures the right of existence of all creatures forming the ecosystem, the latter secures only the organisms which are directly performing an assigned beneficial role. This is very much the gardener or farmer mode of thinking, he argues. And the author then refers to a debate within conservation biology concerning how to strike the balance between human needs and the interests or needs of nature and, and ecosystems. And he concludes that humanity will have to decide soon which of these contrasting strategies or views that we want to adopt. Are we going to live in nature as a system that works uh, on its own, considering all its necessary limitations? Or do we wish to build what he calls a new post-nature with a full responsibility for the structure and functioning of the man-made ecosystems? And in this second case, uh, teleology will be a ruling paradigm with deep consequences for a new world view. And he also notes from the literature that there, there are predictions that with optimized utilization of the planet for food production for human consumption, we could possibly sustain as much as between 32 and 64 billion people. But that would, of course, be at the expense of having a very different planet than than we have today. What I find so interesting or fascinating with this article is that he gives a very sort of personal and vivid um, account, representation of these two views on nature and two paradigms. And it's very easy to follow, it's easy to understand, and it's also very engaging in in the way that he uh, he tells his story. Um, On the other hand, I would say that it is perhaps a bit oversimplified. I mean, one could, of course, say that reality is that we are to a large extent already in a situation where we have impacted ecosystems so much that we must assume some kind of stewardship responsibility, at least for for some natural systems. And we previously in this pod also talked about so-called socio-ecological systems So the perception that we can't really sort of extract humans and human society and systems from nature and see them as, as separate. And I can also see a point in using concepts such as um, ecosystem services uh, when there are decisions that have to be made on how to allocate uh, limited resources for conservation, for example. Although, of course, they are also associated with the risk of sort of justifying or overemphasizing a more uh, anthropocentric perspective or view on on nature and resources.
0: Yeah. Um when it comes to ecosystem services, I thought it was I really liked this article because he I, I think he put in words something that I've been trying thinking about a lot when it comes to ecosystem services, and that when they're analyzed through this teleological approach, the problematic aspects of the concept becomes highlighted, and you can see and and that, for me, was quite interesting. And I mean, I agree with you that in some ways it was a bit simplifying but I also liked that it was both complicated and simplifying at the same time and and just putting a spotlight on problematic aspects of some concepts or some conservation uh, discourses that are out there.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I, th- I think this sort of this clarity that he brings to this discussion is is very <laughs> sort of illuminating or rewarding. But I mean, there is, of course, also large literature that discusses similar issues in terms of more or less anthropogenic or ecocentric perspectives and management approaches, for example, that may be more nuanced and also more concrete and sort of engaged with discussions of what, what are the actual management implications here but uh, he he very much uh, or he succeeds very well i think in in illustrating these sort of pure perspectives or concepts of, of of these um ways of approaching nature although i i think in practice most of the time most people are somewhere in between these poles
0: yeah i believe so as well but i i mean yeah and it's uh, this Discussions are recurring also in other places than in the marine area, and that's what I liked. It made me think about an opinion piece that I read just last week about Swedish forestry, where the solution to the problems with this forestry was more or less to kill more... A, a really large part of the moose population as they did more harm than good for those in the forestry that was trying to plant anything but fir trees so their 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 purpose wasn't really to be there but they were destructing our ways of uh, conducting a sustainable forestry and i thought it was it it made me think of this article as well
1: I actually also read that piece, uh, and I sort of saw that as an implicit call for more wolves. Maybe that wasn't wasn't the the purpose of the author, but that's how I interpret it. I mean, if you want to control the, because I I think compared to sort of, uh, if we go a few hundred years back, probably the the moose population is is much more, uh, or the moose are much more populous. And sort of the natural counterpoint to that, of course, would be to have more predators like, like <laughs> wolves.
0: Yeah, I wonder if that would be a politically feasible uh, avenue to, to yeah. explore. But, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, we'll see. But another thing that that the paper made me think about was the this discussion of disnification of nature, mm. where only cute animals get protected as we're more afraid of them going extinct than say small slimy worms in the deep sea and i mean it's not exactly what he was talking about but but it's still the same sort of how we conceive of nature if we conceive of it as in relation to its purpose or it being uh, beautiful for us to look at or cute or whatever but 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 I, i thought um at least it made me think of those discussions as well yeah,
1: and I, I think it definitely resonates with what he talks about these different ways of sort of depicting evolution, how we describe it um, with this sort of traditional uh, 19th century uh, tree structure with s- s- small sort of low developed organisms at the bottom and then Uh, We're getting up towards more and more um, developed and complex organisms that are larger and and probably more beautiful. And we know more about them and we probably care more about them. And then at the very top, um, we find ourselves. And of course, there is some sort of implicit in that model that the higher up you come, the more important you are. Mm Uh, I, I would assume. Whereas he says that if we look at more more contemporary uh, ways of depicting um, species and 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 how they relate, we can see that we are only one arm at one of three big arms on this sort of tree like structure, which doesn't really put us in any any privileged position in that respect.
0: Yeah, one 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 issue I have with this uh, trying to liberate ourselves from. The tele- teleological approach to looking at animals and plants in their relation to the ecosystem is that, I mean, we can o- only liberate ourselves so much from from ourselves if you get what I mean. I mean, we can always talk about trying to adopt a, a less anthropocentric worldview, but we're still we still start in ourselves. It's difficult to to totally liberate yourself from the the anthropocentric worldview, and here I believe that the resilience and social-ecological systems are a way of assisting in this, as not at least as not seeing ourselves as a, an external part in these ecosystem, but more of an internal part. But for our, for us to, man- I mean, we're in a situation where we need to manage ecosystems because our behavior affects them so much. so And when we manage them, we also need to understand them in a way that's understandable for us. And that has to be, at least in some way, in their relation to a specific ecosystem, their role in a specific ecosystem.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think, I mean, even if one may argue for a more sort of ecocentric perspective, of course, there are many moral questions to be posed. I mean, if we have to make... Uh, prioritizations between ecological values and human and societal values. Uh, obviously, there are moral dimensions that may guide us, and there are political perspectives that might guide us toward putting emphasis on on the political. Oh, sorry, on on the human, the societal interests uh, in in many cases. Um, but I think when we do that, or if we do that, it should be based not on ignorance, not on not sort of understanding or having this, as you say, disnified or this very rudimentary understanding of nature but it should be clear to us that well we we are interdependent with nature nature is complex Uh, nature doesn't have sort of inherent um, teleological uh, concepts or conditions but if if but still as you say we are uh, by necessity we have to engage as moral actors and as some kind of, of stewards with nature in in many in many areas in many instances but we should do that out of a a proper understanding of what nature is and how we how we interact with or interrelate with nature i think something i found a bit uh, well funny maybe is that I, I didn't bring that up but he actually uses the eu's common fisheries policy the cfp yeah. as an example of the ecosystem approach or the ideal that he is looking for and of course i mean on paper there's a lot of ecosystem approach in the cfp but um i think you would struggle to find uh, any commentators who would use the cfp as an example of successful ecosystem approach
0: ah uh, yeah uh, hopefully so we'll, maybe, we'll, we'll
1: get there one day but i mean there's still still some way to go i would say
0: yeah maybe it's not the best practice right now or no if we have to look for those but yeah and uh, i think that in the in the second paper today we'll uh, touch upon it as well that w- what happens when we try to apply a, a purely biocentric uh perspective with the risk of green grabbing and ocean grabbing yeah, and pushing the exactly. local users and communities away from a resource because we want to preserve it and conserve it uh and that's an, i mean that's equally maybe that, that that's also a really big problem that needs to be addressed and here this again goes against this dichotomy between anthropocentric and biocentric worldviews that makes them a bit uh, difficult to apply because it, they're so t- two so interconnected systems.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, we, we we can't escape making hard choices, but they need to be made based on sort of. Uh a deeper understanding and a reflection, not these kind of knee-jerk approaches that we see in either this or that, rather sort of black and white fashion. Yes. Maybe it's time for you to present your article.
0: Yes, I think it is. So, yeah, as I said, it's about ocean grabbing. The article is called Marine Spatial Planning and the Risk of Ocean Grabbing in the Tropical Atlantic. Um, The corresponding author is Betty Keffelec at the University of Brest. There are quite a few authors to this article, so I won't mention all of them. Uh, It was published in the ISIS Journal of Marine Science in January 2021. So as the title suggests, the article takes its departure in the problem of ocean-grabbing and then specific, specifically the risk of ocean-grabbing when new regimes for marine spatial planning are implemented in the tropical Atlantic. The two countries that are used uh, as cases here are Senegal and Brazil. And Ocean-grabbing is defined as a phenomenon where traditional users, such as small-scale fishers, are pushed aside by new activities. And the authors claim that a well thought through MSP can prevent ocean grabbing while a less considerate MSP system may increase ocean grabbing. And the paper starts out by concluding that the expansion of new activities such as deep sea mining and renewable energy, especially wind farms, as a promotion for blue growth has raised new challenges in terms of sea use. Sea space is limited and this leads to increasing conflicts and risk of ocean grabbing where traditional users are being pushed aside by new development activities. And this is particularly true for uh, the global south bordering the tropical Atlantic as they have legal, political, social, economical uh, and and ecological specificities that make them particularly sensitive for ocean grabbing risks. And I would say that while this may be true, uh, I would like to Add that the issue of competing interests relation to use of space, um, which forces about new planning regimes, are as old as human civilizations more or less. This has been the reason for any planning regime that has come about since at least the Roman times. And it, it's also been the rationale between, behind MSP in a European and North American context. Although the risks of ocean grabbing might not be as explicit in Europe, challenges with involving relevant stakeholders and issues of vested interest being more powerful in the planning process is a well-documented challenge also in these contexts. So I think that should be added at least. So anyway, the paper focuses on ocean grabbing risks associated with MSP in countries bordering the tropical Atlantic and in doing so They also follow a call from Flannery uh, in 2016 to engage in a broader, more critical understanding of the social and distributive impacts of MSP, advocating a radical turn in MSP away from rationalism of science and neoliberal logics towards a more equity-based democratic decision-making and a fairer distribution of ocean wealth. By studying the subject, uh, before the the implementation of MSP in these two countries, the aim is to prevent problems of ocean grabbing. As a background, the socio-economic context of both countries is presented, analyzing the Human Development Index, the Gini Index to measure inequality, uh, or income inequality, and uh, the Rule of Law Index, and then they compare these to France. Here, I, I might have—I would have liked to see a bit more a clearly expressed corruption index as well, as I believe that it is an important factor for ocean grabbing and also participation processes. Maybe corruption could be included in these other indexes, but I would have liked it to be a bit more explicit. Corruption seems to be uh, quite silent in this entire article
1: yeah you're right that's that's striking really but I, I i like this sort of preventive approach that they have that they want to analyze these policies before uh, msp actually happens in these countries and try to if possible sort of assist by uh, well h- helping these countries to avoid the the pitfalls associated with msp
0: yeah i think that's really important cuz and they touch upon that as well when they discuss adaptive uh, the adaptiveness of the system but and that uh, planning systems in one sense can be adaptive, but they can also be sort of, they, I mean, give rights to certain users, which mm. then locks in certain behaviors. And so in that sense, it's really important to thaw- thought this through really before implementing the MSP in any context and that it is adjusted to the context and the s- situation where it's about to be implemented. So The main two questions that the paper addresses are does MSP risk contributing to ocean grabbing in the tropical Atlantic and how can this be be prevented? To answer this they uh, start by analysing ocean grabbing. It's described as a relatively new concept which has been described in different ways but can be said to not include only the appropriation of resources or spaces but also specifies people who are subject to grabbing Resource users, rights holders, or inhabitants, and the mechanisms through which it may happen, and this can be inappropriate governance processes as well as negative, uh, possible negative consequences. Here, power is a highly relevant concept. In analyzing powers, the authors cite different scholars, from Foucault and to more specifically MSP-related scholars such as uh, Van Tatenhove and uh, Flannery again. And powers understood here as an ability to act and specifically refers to the ability to steer and influence others. Power is also co-produced on a structural level, for example, by dominant discourses that favor specific solutions and interventions or institutionalized roles and positions. And Then the article goes on to review the legal construction of ownership in the marine space uh, in the two country studies. I won't go further into that as I'm trying to keep this discussion a bit uh, more on a principle level but it should be noted that oil and gas extraction, the construction of resorts in coastal areas, aquaculture development, port infrastructure, energy industry development and foreign fisheries are activities that has led to the exclusion of traditional users in these countries. Um, But green grabbing has also been an issue, for example, huge reforestation of mangroves in coastal areas has led to the dispossession of uh, local communities. And furthermore, MPAs uh, may risk excluding local communities from their traditional fishing grounds. The following part of the paper analyzes the role and potential of MSP in mitigating ocean grabbing. A central argument here is that if MSP is not adapted to the specific context in which it is being implemented, it can end up reinforcing ocean grabbing processes. While there have been only a few studies on MSP in Africa and Latin America, partly due to little implementation, the concept is spreading and thus there is a need to to analyze uh, the concept within these contexts. And based on an ecosystem approach, the paper argues that MSP offers a chance to fight against ocean grabbing through a holistic vision encompassing environment, social issues, and addressing all economic activities involved, and thus offering a participative framework to develop together a consensus on the ocean's future. However, MSP could also end up being developed far from this ideal picture if the tropical context is neglected. If this happens, MSP can instead exacerbate ocean grabbing by underestimating imbalanced stakeholder power, by overconfidence in decision support tools, and by limiting adaptive processes. And a critical factor In MSP is the meaningful inclusion of stakeholders in the planning process and countries bordering the tropical Atlantic have legal, political, social, economic and ecological specificities which can be particularly sensitive to ocean grabbing, the authors argue. And political instability associated with institutional or enforcement weaknesses creates a high degree of uncertainty in tropical, coastal and marine social ecological systems. If power dynamics are not explicitly recognized and addressed as an issue of concern, MSP may only reinforce the dominant power relations in policymaking and broader society. As natural resource management at sea traditionally is a centralised activity, also in developing and emerging states of the tropical Atlantic region, There is a risk of top-down driven MSP, which would exclude coastal communities from governance arrangements. New activities and the reordering of existing uses are also likely to affect people's lives more directly and substantially. So access to formal decision-making structure is often considered problematic, reflecting political disempowerment. And in addition to these above mentioned challenges, the paper addresses the use of decision support tools and how these can be used without exacerbating inequalities in ocean grabbing. And the purpose of these tools is to increase knowledge on cons- conservation problems and enlighten policymakers regarding potential conflicts and solutions. And in order to avoid, even involuntarily, the pitfalls of ocean grabbing, a critical eye needs to be kept when dealing with these tools. So, in conclusion, then, how can ocean grabbing traps be avoided? Well, the first aspect is to recognize the objectives and motivations of all stakeholders in developing uh, MSP through an inclusive participative process. And the paper proposes that MSP is tailor-made to the specific circumstances and built from a local level up to a national level, focusing on context-specific objectives. There's a need to ensure that the objectives of the more vulnerable stakeholders have been fairly taken into account and that the means required to achieve them are secured. And I really enjoyed reading this paper. I think it brings up some important aspects of MSP. First of all, as the authors mentioned, scholarship concerning MSP has been very much focused on the Global North setting. A lot has been written, but hardly anything about the preconditions for MSP in the Global South. And of course, I mean, there are some basic ideas of what to achieve with MSP that can be transferred to other settings. But as the authors note, there's a need to adapt the planning to the specific setting in which it's located. But the authors seem to claim that this is mostly true for the Global South or Tropical Atlantic. But I would argue that it is equally true for any setting in which MSP is going to be implemented. Perhaps other issues may arise if... MSP is going to be implemented in Sweden or in Senegal. But any MSP regime that is to be implemented in Sweden needs to be informed by the constitutional, political and cultural setting here as well. There can't be one system for MSP that works anywhere, not even everywhere in Europe. The framework design of the EU MSP directive is a testament to this, I would say. And it it helps by just looking around here close to us in the Baltic Sea context, where how differently all the Baltic states have implemented the MSP directive as binding or non-binding, environmentally or blue growth focused, localized or centralized planning. Every country has their own way of implementing MSP in order to suit their specific context. And the same is true for the tropical Pacific. Brazil and Senegal are, of course, very different in many senses, and the design of MSP will need to take this into account. But that said, I think the paper was really needed. There's a need to highlight the challenges within MSP, and ocean grabbing is a real problem, not only in the tropical Atlantic, even if the risk may be higher in societies where there are larger inequalities and perhaps a higher degree of corruption.
1: Yeah. Um, when you refer to the EU MSP process and directive as testament to the need to consider cultural and local context, I assume you're referring to sort of the the strong focus on process rather than on substantive requirements. And,
0: yes, absolutely. Yeah. That it, yeah. it, it has a very f- uh, framework nature that it's not not really. Yeah, it needs to be adjusted to any context where it's implemented.
1: Yeah. No, I also found this article to be very sort of rich. It, it provided many different perspectives, not not least, of course, this uh, focusing on, as you said, Global South perspectives, uh, which, of course, within them or between them can be very divergent, uh, depending on what country and what context you're looking at. Um, also, this uh, that they brought up the decision support tools and the fact that they can sort of exacerbate the top-down perspective because these tools are not very um, easy to understand and they can sort of produce results that are taken as granted or as the truth of something which may not be easy to contest for someone who doesn't understand how these instruments work but i think that is to a large extent as you say also true for for a european or a north american for example context of course there will be some ngos maybe some some industry associations and others who have the capacity to understand and to challenge these instruments but for most local people who are are affected uh, just as as individuals or small-scale business um businesses I I don't think that these are very sort of transparent mechanisms
0: either no even even when it comes down to local authorities I yeah mean, lo, local yes. governments as we have municipalities in Sweden they have a I mean they they, they don't have the, the, the knowledge to analyze or, or use all of these decision support tools either or the results from them But if I relate it to your article or the one that you presented, David, you could ask why does MSP exist? And I think this is a fundamental question and it differs in different contexts. In a certain context, the aim is to promote blue growth or to develop offshore energy production. In another, it may be to promote conservation. In, In any of these examples, there's a risk of ocean grabbing and more importantly, Uh, And the paper which I presented touches upon this. In this context, the idea of what rational planning is will differ. As the paper discusses, MSP is often promoted as a means of achieving a rational use of space. But this rationality needs to be filled with meaning. And it it is also informed by the objectives of the planning itself. Mm. If the objective is to achieve maximum blue growth, then the rational planning will be a completely different one than if the objective was to achieve a maximum conservation. And here I I like to think about an important work from the literature on planning theory, which is the book Planning in the Public Domain uh, by John Friedman in 1987. Friedman discusses different types of rationalities and he claims that all planning departs from what he calls the social rationality, And this is a rationality which is territorially fixed and connected to a certain social group such as a nation, a municipality or a smaller community. These are the interests that are always promoted in planning. Those of the social group for which the planning is performed. He also discusses different types of rationality, market rationality and formal and material rationality. But I won't go further into that here. But the main point is that rationality is always contextual and thus the same is true for planning. So when designing a system for MSP, one must be highly responsive to the different social rationalities that may exist within one area so that there isn't one type of rationality that will prevail over others. So what may be forwarded as a rational plan may be fundamentally irrational from another point of view.
1: Yeah, rationality, of course, is, is a highly sort of relative concept, uh, definitely.
0: And I guess this was what they were also trying to aim at when they said that they answered the call of Flannery to move away from this scientific rationality where we can always find one uh, optimum solution. And I, I, I think that these decision support tools also run a risk of I mean if if you're overconfident in these decision support tools you might believe that they uh, provide this uh, scientific rationality but they're also very dependent on what you put in from the beginning in them what the objectives of of the tools are
1: Yeah yeah I, I guess both on on the data that you put in and the uh, assumptions that you apply etc so there, there must be many factors that that sort of can very much influence the output from, from the models. And as we said, only few people are probably competent enough to understand uh, what small changes will, will have in terms of effect on the output. Um, another sort of parallel that I made when I read these articles was that they talked about um, traditional, what they call traditional polyvalent small-scale fisheries mm-hmm. as possibly the key to ensuring the resilience to exploitation of living resources in these marine ecosystems. Uh, and that they are then um, adapted to or, or resembling so-called balanced harvesting. And uh, what struck me was that with this view on, on fishing and how to use... Uh, fisheries um, you're probably not as as easily trapped in this view of specific fish species as the main resource and anything posing a threat to that species being well out of place or something that needs to be controlled. You get I think naturally you, you have a much broader conception of what the resource is and you want the entire system you have the ability to appreciate the entire system in such mm-hmm. a fisheries, I would assume. And that's of course also makes it interesting these debates about balanced harvesting as a concept that could be applied also in, in more large scale industrialized uh, fishing um, processes.
0: Yeah and I mean related to fisheries I also think it's important when discussing this to discuss what the limits of MSP are that I mean many of the problems with the IUU fisheries is they, they're they global these problems they're not locus, localized and they can't be solved by a marine spatial planning regime it's it, needs to be re- remembered sometimes i think that msp is only one of many tools that can be used and need to be used because the problem with overfishing is a problem that is not confined only to msp or to a local setting but to a larger global setting where and related to consumption patterns globally and, and whatever but it's yeah and the limits of msp needs to be reiterated sometimes in the MSP literature, I think
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely agree. When you talk about IOU fishing, maybe we could take the opportunity to to mention that we do have an episode, episode 12 of the podcast when we actually talk about social oh, cost yeah. of combating IOU fishing uh, and, and using then um, I think predominantly an African uh, context as an example of that. so mm-hmm. we have discussed similar issues before, um, not focusing on MSP but but still on this contextual um, importance yeah. of context.
0: Yeah. And uh, on uh, on the MSP literature, I think that it's, it's really promising that it, in the last years, there have come quite a few pieces of work that are, I mean, trying to take different approaches to MSP, which I find really interesting. And it will be... Yeah, you can only hope that some of these ideas and thoughts also reach the policy side of things Uh, because the topics that are raised in this paper and in many papers on MSP are really important for the processes to to be informed by, I think.
1: Yeah, I've noted that people have recently started to refer to the critical turn in MSP discourse or MSP literature so they're starting to sort of build a body of of these more critical approaches. Um, Then of course I think one has to caution against going too far into this theoretical, critical <laughs> discourse because then it's you 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 lose this, you lose touch with what is sort of practically applicable or useful for those who, in the end of the day, are tasked with making MSP operational.
0: Yes, absolutely. I and I I do believe that this article actually. Uh, held that line quite well yes and absolutely yes been... yeah they
1: definitely strike this balance uh, in a very good manner i think it's 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 really sort of accessible they they make their case very clearly uh, yeah no I, I find it also very a very good uh, a rewarding read really
0: yeah so maybe then we can answer why does msp exist to prevent ocean grabbing is that the is that the answer <laughs>
1: Uh it, it could be uh. Yeah. For them, at least, it it could be. Uh... It's
0: it's multi-purpose. It's definitely multi-purpose. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um. So, but maybe that's all we had for today. Or what do you say?
1: Yeah, I think that was a nice episode.
0: Yeah, great talking to you again. It's. I mean, we've been recording a bit more, uh, scarcely lately. But it's because of uh, finalizing phd projects and other big projects but uh, we hope to be able to record at least a couple of times more this spring
1: yes so look out for new episodes
0: yes do please do okay thank you david
1: yes thank you aaron and thank you all for listening
0: yeah thank you so much goodbye
1: goodbye